welcome to all of you, especially those who are newer. Glad you're here and hope that you feel like a part of the family here at Hope. Um, well, today is the 26th of June, and five years ago today was my first time as the guest speaker here at Hope. Five years ago. And I know that because it was my wife's birthday that day. We were newly wed, and I had not like thought, oh, that's a terrible idea to speak somewhere on my wife's birthday um, as a newlywed, but, but uh, I did anyway. It was her birthday that day, and today is, where did she go? She's hiding on us. Today is her birthday as well. Um, we won't get to sing to her because she's not here. She probably thought I was going to make her stand up on the table this service, which I might have. I might have. We'll see. So she's probably hiding very cleverly. Um, but but uh, one of the reasons that Heidi just immediately fell in love with Hope was that when someone here at Hope heard that it was her birthday, uh, they went up to her afterwards and said, oh my goodness, you look far too young to be married to him. So... Um, and so she, you know, ever since, well, we really need to go back to that church. Great church, she said. So whoever that was that was responsible for that lie, I mean, that, um, that statement, uh, here we are. It's your fault. Yeah. So, all right. Hey, um, let's pray as we move into the message this morning. Um, Father, we, uh, again, we just pause. We give you our hearts. We give you permission and access. Would you speak to us in ways that perhaps we need to hear and let all the other things that I might say that um, are not from you, let it just slide off. Um, we give you our time now, and we open our hearts to anything you have to say to each of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're wrapping up this series that's kind of started and stopped depending on who's speaking. And the series we've been in, and this is the last one of these messages, uh, we've been calling it Faith with a Question Mark. I doubt it. Faith? I doubt it. And in this series, we spent a lot of time looking at how God is not afraid of our doubts. Um, we, we've looked at how being honest about our doubts and not hiding our doubts actually is a good thing. And that in the process of being real about questions we have or doubts that we have and pressing through and processing, even if we don't always have great answers, by sticking with it, though, we can end up with a stronger faith, even if all the doubts don't go away because our faith is based on a relationship, a connection with God, not just on having answers. Now, some folks have asked great questions in this series, and again, we don't have time to go into like a long seminar every Sunday, even though sometimes it probably feels like it's one of those, but um, um, great questions asked about, well, listen, okay, so if we ask questions all the time, um, don't some people sometimes start by just asking honest questions, and then it leads them actually away from, away from faith or to abandon their relationship with God? Um, and that does happen. That does happen. By the way, I think that would happen for those folks, whether or not they ask questions. It wasn't the question that brought it on. It's usually something else. Um, but asking questions in people walking away from God uh, is, is nothing new. In fact, over the last several years, probably a couple decades, there's a widespread phenomenon that's been building for several years. Now, many of you have likely heard about it, at least. Um, it's a thing called deconstruction. When it comes to faith, Many people are deconstructing or taking apart their faith or the things they believe or have been taught to examine if that thing that they were taught is actually true or not. And there's an increasing number of people, especially younger people, that are deconstructing their faith and 
leaving the church. Um, Barna Research, which is a Christian owned research company. We actually know the owner of that company. Um, uh, They've studied this trend extensively. They are kind of the expert on a lot of these culture and church and Christianity faith trends. And in uh, 2019, they documented that 64%, so almost two-thirds of people between the ages of 18 and 30 who were previously involved in church as they grew up, 64% have walked away, just dropped out of church. And with that kind of a percentage, chances are you know, or maybe you are someone who has done that, walked away from or deconverted from or deconstructed the version of Christianity that you were given or that they were given. And it's not hard if you're on social media to see the social media um, subject of deconstruction. It's all over the social media feeds, and that's where a lot of people tend to get their information about uh, faith, about church, about um, um, Christianity. They go to social media to get these short, um, creative, very creative and viral videos, and some of the most popular ones um, happen to be from folks who refer to themselves as um, ex-evangelicals, so even ex-evangelicals. Exvangelicals, um, and so those are some of the prominent voices in this uh, movement. And one of the reasons that that young people, both inside and outside of the church, are being driven toward these public documentations of deconstruction of faith is because of their frustration and their disillusionment with the current state of the church. In fact, the the study, the studies that I read. Um, said when it comes to these folks who are deconstructing and leaving their faith, especially the younger ones, it's less about doctrinal issues like, okay, well, I'm a uh, Calvinist, I'm an Arminian, so I'm going to that church, I'm going to that church. There's still some of that that exists, but it's less among younger folks. Uh, It's less about doctrinal differences that they're leaving over, and it's more about how they perceive Christians behaving. Here's some of the things that were (laughs) discovered in these studies. Um, Some of the things that drove people away were disillusionment with uh, high-profile churches or pastors or ministries that kind of have celebrity pastors who eventually, sadly, too frequently, turn out to have kind of shadow sides and some darkness um, that's been hidden in their life and it comes to light and it doesn't have to be a famous pastor or a famous church. It happens in all kinds of churches. That kind of stuff is very disillusioning one of the reasons that people walk away from church. Another thing the research showed was that for many people, um, and this was in the research, that, that, that many young folks are angry at how defensive white Christians have been about addressing issues of racism. For instance, um, somewhere in the culture of Christians, the verbiage of um, probably certain news media entered into the discussion in racism. And so a term like woke somehow became an insult to uh, folks that are in the church when the original meaning of woke uh, had more to do with somebody realizing, oh, wow, I have treated someone terribly. I'm not, wasn't aware of it or I'm waking up to it. I'm seeing it now. And somehow, though, woke has become an insult, and people are seeing that in the church, and it's turning them away. Um, Another uh, primary thing that's been a problem is is the way they've seen 
uh, us church people treat other people that we disagree with. Uh, Particularly, the study says, when it comes to issues of sexuality, um, the way that Christians treat people um, around sexuality issues uh, has been less than Christian. How many of you know that whether you agree with um, how sexuality plays out in different ways, there's never an excuse for a follower of Jesus to be unkind or condemning or demeaning to someone who identifies differently than perhaps many or most Christians would sexually. It's just never okay. And that's one of the reasons that younger folks are leaving the church and disillusion. Um, another one is the mocking and the name calling that they can't see come out of people who call themselves Christians. Um, I thought of this one when I was driving and saw a car with three bumper stickers. Um, and by the way, this could go to either political parties. It's just this car I saw, okay? Um, there was a local mega church sticker, which I won't name. Um, there was a Christian fish, you know, the little fish symbol, and there was the third sticker said a let's go Brandon sticker, Um, and I just had to stop and go, ooh, I mean, those of you that know what that means, it's a veiled profanity um, toward the current president, but it wouldn't matter if it was something toward him or someone of the other party, it's just not okay. Um, And by the way, that's part of why people have asked, hey, maybe we should get more bumper stickers for the people at our church. Um, And so because of that, uh, we're not doing it. And because I've seen some of you drive. So that's the other reason. We'll see. Um, The, (laughs) if the shoe fits, right? Yeah, okay. (laughs) Um, So the last last big one was um, just saying how no matter which side of the aisle politically people are on, Christians who completely defend their guy on whatever side um, and make excuses for the absolutely ungodly, unchristian things that are being done. Again, the younger folks see that hypocrisy, they walk away. And so Barna's study said 64% of those aged 18 to 32 who used to attend church at some point have left, are deconstructing their faith, and mainly, they discovered, because of how Christians and churches in the U.S., are behaving in unbiblical ways. That's just the data, like it or not, we have to hear it, see it, and go, wow, what do we do about that, if anything? See, for some of it's way more personal. It's personal for Heidi and I because we have uh, family members in that age range who have once followed Jesus, were discipled in a particular kind of church who no longer follow Jesus. It breaks our heart to see them walk away. Anyone else here know someone that used to follow Jesus and has walked away disillusioned? Anyone? Some of us in the room? All the, all the heathens must be in the first service because all of them, yeah, raise their hand. Um, this phenomenon is so expansive that they actually created a new sociological label for these folks, and they label them the nuns, the N, not the Catholic nuns, right, but the N-O-N-E-S, which is shorthand for not affiliated with any belief group. And the nuns now in our culture in the U.S. account for 23% of the U.S. population overall, so all age groups, and 35% of every American between the age 25 and 40 would say, listen, we've decided we're not interested in the God that was presented to us as children anymore. It's not that we find atheism like all that compelling or attractive. 
It's just that we find religion extraordinarily unattractive. We're out. See, stories of Christians who deconstruct and walk away, they're common, so I think it's understandable when people get nervous and wonder, should we even be asking hard questions about faith at all? Because they're afraid that if you start asking honest questions, looking at the state of how things really are and compare how we as Christians are acting compared to how Jesus calls us to live and see the disconnect, if we look too closely at that, people are just going to automatically lose faith and they hear stories and they hear stats and they see that and so they get wary, they get afraid when it comes to the topic of deconstruction. And, and I'll acknowledge, while some people go into that deconstruction mode and end up walking away from faith, the question I've been wanting to ask for weeks and we're going to look at for the rest of our time this morning is this. Can deconstruction actually help us to build our faith, build a stronger faith in God? Can deconstruction actually not just turn into something negative and cynical, which it often does, but could it actually help you build your faith? See, part of it is, do we want to know the truth, or do we want to just defend the thing that we already think is the truth, whether it's true or not? Um, Dave Johnson and I were talking about this a few months ago, and then this week, and and he said, the only way... that you can honestly say you are committed to the truth is if you are open to the chance that you could possibly be wrong. Otherwise, your commitment, it's not to the truth. Your commitment is to what you already believe. So you're just going to look for ways to reinforce that. Whatever the truth might be, I'm just going to keep reinforcing this, which means we're not really after the truth. We're just protecting our belief So it actually takes courage to test our beliefs, whether we believe or don't believe. It takes courage to test our beliefs. And for followers of Jesus, actually, as we follow Jesus, Scripture shows us that that, that, um, we are invited. Um, We need to examine our beliefs and make sure that what we actually believe lines up, squares up with the teachings of Jesus. In fact, it's It's what Jesus did from the start of his public ministry. It's what he did. Had people stop and look at it. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of these gospels record a similar version. I'm going to read the Mark version because it's way shorter. So here we go. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. This is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, John the Baptist is arrested, and Jesus, it says, came into Galilee. Catch this, and I'll explain these words in a minute. Proclaiming. Here's his message, the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. Repent, he says, and believe in the gospel. Same thing recorded in each of the uh, other two gospels um, besides John where it says this is the first thing he did. This is how Jesus started his ministry, his public ministry. He launches it out, and his message when he launches is the message he will carry through his entire ministry. He says, it's now time. The kingdom of God is now available. Repent and believe the gospel. 
And I want to clarify some of those words because they sound a little churchy, but bible or religious for some folks. And even if you've been a Christian a while, it's easy to just kind of gloss over those words and not stop and remember what they mean. So just to clarify the passage, when Jesus says the gospel, the gospel, he's proclaiming the gospel. The word gospel means good news. He, he's bringing good news. This is good news. Keep that in the front of your mind. Um, and what's the good news? Well, the good news is that the kingdom of God, it's finally here. It's at hand. The kingdom is a new realm to do life in, a new way to do life. N.T. Wright points out that Jesus proclaiming the kingdom of God would have been immediately recognized by his audience as revolutionary language. It's a a kingdom which would rival every other kingdom. It would have gotten their attention real quick because if you know the historical setting when Jesus was here on earth 2,000 years ago, amongst the people of God, amongst the Jews, the people of Israel were sick and tired of being oppressed by pagan, godless rulers who were destroying their way of life and their way of worship. They had been waiting for the Messiah, who God had promised through the prophets, a Messiah that would come and liberate them, set them free to bring on a revolution. So they've all been waiting. And so they would hear all these different false messiahs show up and try to start a movement and start a revolution. And they all had revolutionary language. And when Jesus proclaimed this, they heard that revolutionary language about the kingdom of God And all of them, every one of them would have an opinion, a specific idea about how the Messiah would come and how the Messiah would conquer and put them in charge and punish their godless enemies because that's how the kingdoms of this world work. We win by the power of the sword. It's a power over. It's how the kingdom of this world works, power over And of course, all of Jesus' listeners, they would have been certain that they were right about this. They, they could back up their military, their political opinion with the scriptures after all. They could make Israel great again. It's right there in the scriptures, or so they thought. But Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God's kingdom and Jesus doesn't say all right now let's build back better no he says repent and believe the gospel the good news now pause real quick that word repent can be confusing we can hear it and get pictures of like you know the street corner preacher yelling screaming at people to stop sinning but the word repent actually means to change your mind and go a different direction that's repenting to change your mind to go a different direction. And so often we read the word repent and we think about Jesus saying things like, hey, 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 listen, repent and stop your sinning, which would, you know, matter to Jesus. But in the context here and in uh, Matthew and Luke where he says the same thing, in context, it's very clear um, that Jesus is saying, 
change, repent, change your mind about the way you have been assuming and believing that the kingdom of God would come about. So he's saying, repent, change your mind and align with the kingdom of God, not with the kingdom of this world that you're pursuing, even though you've convinced yourself by, by using the scriptures and constructing, you know, doctrine and theological beliefs, and even though many of the respected and famous and well-known teachers have taught it that way, Jesus tells them, sorry guys, that's not the way the kingdom of God is coming about. Jesus tells them they're wrong about, about their assumptions, and then he deconstructs their views. And real quick, uh, two things about how Jesus deconstructs, which is very different, I think, than how our world often deconstructs two things very important he he deconstructs in order to then reconstruct um, he doesn't just leave a mess after he takes it all apart he gives them something different and new he gives them the kingdom of god that's one thing um, and he deconstructs with a kingdom of god perspective of scripture so he looks at scripture through the lens of the kingdom of god he looks at scripture through a different lens than the rest of us would have naturally looked at scripture before jesus came these are important things and they're informative i think for those of us on a journey of faith where we think about how do we kind of deconstruct things and what's actually helpful for us to be able to deconstruct and reconstruct and to understand how to approach truth because for them they thought their views were the truth <laughs> They thought their views, they would claim all our views are based on the scriptures and Jesus comes in and he blows it all up. And all you have to do is read through the gospels and the teaching of Jesus and how it made people so mad and you're like, why are they so mad? Well, they're so mad because he is deconstructing their views and he's saying to them, repent, change your mind. Do, do, do you guys want actual truth or do you just want to back up the assumptions, the things you already think are true, because Jesus says the actual truth is that what you believe is actually wrong. And the religious teachers who taught some of this to you, sure, they got many of the things right, but they got this part wrong, because God has no favored nation, no superior people group. He doesn't like men better than women. And while God does have a heart for the oppressed, his intention is to not make them the new oppressors over other people. <laughs> Um, and the Messiah that was promised, yeah, that promise in the scriptures, it's still true, but he's not the Messiah that you've imagined he would be. He's not a flag-waving, gun-toting, slogan-spouting, war-horse-riding, sword-wielding general, at least not in his first coming. And that's why the people, we read the stories, they were so angry with Jesus so angry, or at least the ones who were in power or in charge, at least the ones who had invested in the religious systems and the political posturing of the day, those ones, they were furious because Jesus came in. He upended their version of truth and what the kingdom would look like and what the Messiah would behave like and what the Messiah would bring and do. But Jesus subversively undermined and deconstructed their propaganda, even though it was well-intended, it was still propaganda. And he didn't stop there. He didn't just take it apart and walk away. He called them to, <clears throat> get this, repent. Oh my goodness, the gall of Jesus. To repent, <laughs> to, to repent, to turn. Um, repent of the trust that they have 
invested in a kingdom that's not in alignment with God's kingdom. He's calling them to repent for twisting and distorting who God actually is. But repenting would require changing their minds and maybe having to let go of some of their power or influence. It would require them looking at what they have believed and how they have interpreted scripture wrongly. To repent would mean calling into question for some of them maybe very foundational things that they had built their life and their political identity on. It would be a big change to repent if you were invested that deeply, which is why many of them wouldn't, maybe even couldn't. He was asking too much. And again, remember the word gospel? (laughs) This all sounds really harsh and like pounding and demand. And it was. Um, But Jesus is saying, by the way, this is good news. You're going to feel like it's bad news because it requires you doing some changing and shifting and repenting. But Jesus said, this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus is saying, trust Trust him that he actually knows what he's talking about and that that his way, his gospel, his path, his kingdom was a way better path than the one that they were on. In fact, Jesus invites them to repent and believe that the gospel is true and that the good news is even better news than they could ever dream up on their own. It's way better would have been pretty hard to imagine because they had some pretty lofty ideas about being in charge and who was in charge and how it would look and who would be under them and who they would pay back. Jesus says, no, no, no. The way I'm calling you, way better, way more life, way more fullness. It's how I've wired it. It's how I've rigged the universe to align with the kingdom of God. Now, it wasn't just them. Because all through history, Christians have repeated this pattern. Sometimes we make these just because we're mistaken. We make a mistake or sometimes we're just blind and we don't see things until we wake up. Sometimes um, we miss out just like the people of God did. uh, Because we just get used to the ways of our world. That we accept things that are normal even though they're very counter to what scriptures teach. And when that happens, I think deconstruction is needed to correct the mistakes that we start to make and assume in our world. And this has happened all through American history uh, through today. Um, But just go back in history uh, to the 1700s, 1800s. One example is how slave owners actually loved. They loved it that their slaves would read the Bible because when slaves read the Bible, they were inspired. But there was a problem too when the slaves read the Bible because the slave owners really didn't like the parts of the Bible that were about the slaves going free. And so they literally, the owners, cut out the book of Exodus, which is a story of God's freedom for slaves. They actually cut out other passages about freedom Um, It's part of why this top there says select parts of the Holy Bible were slave Bibles. They thought, well, this was the Christian thing to do. We don't want to ruffle any feathers or cause any problems. And really, they didn't want to mess with their own advantage. Um, And it fit. It fit what was accepted in their circles to give slaves Bibles that we would cut out anything that might 
cause them to see a bigger picture, um, slave miles. But the good news is there were other Christians who had the courage to fight for justice, who, who, who allowed the scriptures they were reading to challenge their comfort and their status um, and, and help them begin to deconstruct what had been commonly accepted about slavery in the culture that they lived in and their courage in following Jesus and reading the scripture actually sparked the abolition movement that eventually ended slavery. This was Christians who allowed the Bible to speak to them. One Catholic theologian said, um, slavery didn't end because people stopped reading the Bible. Uh, it ended because Christians actually started reading the Bible. See, um, some people... And there's plenty to pick on the church for. Um, but some people would actually point to the Bible and say, well, the problem is the Bible led to abuse and harm. But it wasn't the Bible that led to excusing these kinds of things. It was a twisting of the message of the Bible. It was a twisting of the message of the kingdom of God that, that opened the doors to the horrors of slavery and abuse. And so that stuff had to be deconstructed, which is a good thing. So there's good ways to deconstruct that can lead to life, that can lead to freedom and growth, even if it's not easy. There's good things to deconstruct. But again, I acknowledge there is a bad way to deconstruct as well. Um, many have said a, a version, I think Anne Lamott was probably the originator, and it's sort of morphed. Um, and here's the semi-quote. Uh, God created us in his image. And we are really good at returning the favor <laughs> by creating God in our own image, reflecting our own beliefs and our own preferences. And when we do that, you know, we maybe don't like something in Scripture, then we're just going to ignore it. We'll cut it out. We'll disregard it, which if you're a follower of Jesus, in my opinion, that would be bad deconstruction. Thomas Jefferson gives us a great example of what this kind of deconstruction looks like. He was one of the founders of the United States, one of the framers of the Constitution, and this is a picture here of his Bible. What do you notice about his Bible? Yeah, he cut parts out of his Bible. This, this is actually at the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. You can go look at this Bible yourself if you're ever there. Uh, but Thomas Jefferson was a classic European Enlightenment thinker. And for Jefferson, um, the idea that there was such a thing as the supernatural was, was primitive, was stupid, was ignorant, it was bad, it was untrue, miracles, impossible in his viewpoint. Yet Jefferson sometimes claimed to be a Christian. Today, he's what we would call a deist. A deist is somebody that believes that God created the universe and then sort of stepped away. Um, but the problem with Jefferson's faith or view of Christianity is that uh, the Bible created an interesting problem for him um, because so many stories in the Bible have miracles. So Jefferson literally went to his Bible, cuts out all the miracles, anything miraculous, just cuts it out. Um, you know, I think probably Thomas Jefferson's Bible is the most depressing book in the world because he cuts out the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' story in his Bible ends with his death on the cross. There's no resurrection. There's no redemption. Uh, to me, that's really depressing. 
Um, and so you look at his Bible and what he did, he cut out all the parts that didn't fit his cultural preferences or narrative and the enlightened thinking of his day created a God in his own image, fitting his paradigm. But I think of this and I think of him and I wonder, gosh, what are the ways that we do this? Where, where we don't like something in scripture and maybe we don't like exit out of our Bible or cut it out with a, you know, exacto knife. But we just decide we're gonna ignore that. We're gonna ignore that. We're gonna cut it out. We're gonna disregard it. Um, that's primitive, um, which is really an easy thing for, um, um, you know, those of us of a majority culture to critique uh, a book that was written by 60, 66 books that were written by people who lived in poverty, who were oppressed minority group. You know, if we tried to do that today, we'd be like, don't do that. But for some reason, we skip that one when we critique the Bible in ways that disregard maybe what their worldview was. I won't go into that any further because I do think, though, we do disregard what the Bible says far too often. And this is where I think it's... Re- Important for us to remember that you and I, we're not invited to to love this God that we want to believe in, that we embrace or create. We're invited to love the God who is. Not the one that we want to size down and put into our box that fits all our categories, has all the same opinions as I do, has all the same perspectives and preferences as I do, says everything the way I wish she would. We're not called to love that God. We're called to, invited to love the God who is. And so I think we regularly have to ask ourselves, um, how is it that we might be trying to make God in our own image? by insisting on a God that reflects our current cultural impulses. Is that what we're going to do? Or instead of trying to shape God into our little box, can we trust that even when we don't fully understand, maybe even we don't even like some of what the Bible teaches on issues, things like nonviolence or money or sexuality or political power, instead of shutting it aside or cutting it out, what happens if we just open our hearts to be curious, to wonder and trust that maybe Jesus is onto something here? Like he might actually know what he's talking about when it comes to guiding us on a path that leads to good news, gospel, kingdom of God kind of reality. Wouldn't that be something? So just like he invited the people of his day, Jesus invites us in the same way, invites us to repent invites us to believe that the gospel is true and that the good news is even better than what we could dream up on our own. Even if we think we could invent a better God, if you'd just be different here, wouldn't that be? No. Repent and believe. Gospel is true. Better than anything we could dream up or conjure up on our own. Step back a minute here to Jesus in his culture in his day. He didn't just deconstruct, as I said. He actually then reconstructed, given them a different picture of what it meant 
to live life in the kingdom of God. He actually brought the kingdom of God, demonstrated it through healings and miracles and deliverances. He didn't just teach these profound sayings. He demonstrated what the kingdom looked like, what it meant to love people, to forgive people, that that, that having a life worth living might mean being generous and open-handed instead of the way the kingdom of this world would encourage us to grasp at everything and hold it for ourselves Jesus says, open your hands, give, be generous to those in need and to others. Or how Jesus goes all against the grain saying, those people that you can't stand, <laughs> that, that, that are the, the pagans, are the defilers, are a different kind of people than you, I want, I want you to love them. I want you to treat them like your neighbors. Um, that's a very different kingdom. See, Jesus demonstrated the way of the kingdom of God, which was not about getting power over people. It was not about having the power of the sword. It was not about dominating. The kingdom of God doesn't come that way. That's how the kingdom of this world comes. The kingdom of God comes through power under, not by taking up a sword, but by picking up a cross and laying down your life. And in the last week of his life, they still didn't get it. They still thought, He's going to be the Messiah that becomes the emperor. Here we go. Jesus shows up, rides into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, on a colt of a donkey, probably dragging his feet as he's going, looking ridiculous. (laughs) And then the end of the week, he lays down his life. He doesn't just tell us it's about laying down your life. He actually goes and lays down his life shows us the ultimate self-sacrificial love, saying this is what will win the day. This kingdom is what will win this world. So repent and believe that the gospel is true and that the good news, guys, it's even better news than y'all can dream up on your own because they thought it would be pretty good. They knew who would be in charge and who would make things right in the way they were constructing the kingdom. Jesus says, turn the other way, change directions, change your mind, follow me into a different kingdom, the real kingdom, where you actually will find life. You know, Jesus invites you and I into that today. Same thing, invites us into that as well to lay down all of our aspirations of trying to gain power over and win the day, no matter what it takes, no matter how we do it or how, what it costs, um, he says, lay that down. Just walk with me. He calls us to lay it down and follow him, to allow Jesus to be the one that shapes and guides us in, in how we believe and in, in how we construct our worldview And it's okay then to deconstruct some stuff, right? Again, remember, he deconstructed some of this stuff that wasn't helpful. And again, he did it two ways. He deconstructed in order to then reconstruct. And he did it with a kingdom view of scripture. And for followers of Jesus, he invites us to follow that same pattern. We don't just take things apart and then leave a mess. We ask Jesus to help us then put it together in ways that honor him and help us build a faith worth having. Um, so there's healthy deconstruction, there's unhealthy, bad deconstruction for followers of Jesus anyway. 
Um, bad deconstruction would be um, dismissing scripture because I don't like it, I don't understand it, or I think it's outdated, so I'm just going to ignore it or cut it out. That would be bad deconstruction. But I want to encourage us to look at the good deconstruction, where we take apart the stuff that doesn't look like Jesus, that doesn't line up with scripture's teachings. Things like where people tell us you got to earn God's favor and be good enough or, or holy enough or perfect enough to be a child of God. Take that apart, deconstruct that. Um, viewpoints that God is an angry God and he's angry at you, boy, oh boy, deconstruct that for sure. Um, and then pay attention. Because again, I wish we could look at the issues in our world and identify right away the places that we as Christians need to step up to the plate instead of having people critique us from the outside. <laughs> um, but sometimes they're right. People critique us from the outside and point out some of our flaws, and I'd rather just be pissed and mad and angry at them and push them away or ignore them or call them names. But when we are not living in an alignment with Jesus, I don't care who tells it to us. In humility, we need to ask Jesus to help us see and to help us reflect him better. I mean, again, I, I watch a lot of these social media. I try to stay off of social media, but sometimes I do watch some of these um, blogs, the influencers when it comes to faith, and they actually have done a pretty good job sometimes at, 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 at least naming the issues that we as Christians need to examine and deconstruct. Um, things about um, our treatment of women. There's a large denomination, one of the largest in our country that is under fire because things are coming to light about how women have been treated there over the past many decades. And I'd love to point at them and say it's just them, but it's us too. We do it too. Um, and man, oh man, what if we were the ones that called ourselves out on that and examined that without somebody having to raise the issue somewhere else or with racism instead of the only voice critiquing and telling us the ways to handle racism are through progressive viewpoints, much of which is very valid and worth it's all worth considering, but some of the conclusions and some of the places it takes us is not helpful. What if we as the church would have gotten in on that conversation early on and shaped more of the conversation instead of just reacting so now that we're fighting each other? Um, what if when it comes to politics or treating people that we disagree with, what if instead of people critiquing us from the outside, we were looking at ourselves, deconstructing it ourselves, because um, those that are critiquing from the outside, they're just taking it apart, leaving it a mess. But friends, we are, con we are called to reconstruct then, not leave it a mess, but to take a look and to reconstruct. Um, so we want to deconstruct in order to reconstruct, and we want to do it again with a kingdom view of Scripture, which would invite us back to the message of Jesus for us to repent and believe that the gospel is true, that the good news is even better than any kingdom, any configuration, any reality that we could have dreamt up on our own. Let's believe and trust Jesus with this. As I get ready to wrap up, I want to spend a couple minutes talking to two different groups here. First group is if you're a Christian, follower of Jesus, um, this week, I want you to wonder, along with me, what does it mean for us to repent, to be willing to hold our beliefs and assumptions up to the scriptures and make sure they align with Jesus, with the kingdom of God, and, and are not instead reflecting the kingdom of this world. 
Is there something um, that you might need to change your mind about or reconsider or just open yourself to? Um, Would you take that to the Holy Spirit and just ask, Holy Spirit, um, would you show me? There's somewhere I need you to nudge me. (laughs) I mean, one of the places he nudges me all the time and I've asked and given permission, and so he'll do it, (laughs) Um, is how I treat people that I disagree with. Holy Spirit, I give you permission. When I start going down that road of cynicism or name-calling or or making excuses for politicians that I support because they're on my side of the issues, I give you permission, Holy Spirit, to nudge me. Is there somewhere in your life, in your story, where you'd be open to repent, to change your mind, to do what Jesus called us to do, to take up the cross and follow him by laying down our demands, laying down our rights, and learning to love and serve this world that he's called us to be his hands and feet in, for you and I to repent and believe that the gospel is true, to repent, to change our mind, to be open to the reality that the good news is even better news than we could ever dream up on our own. If you're a follower of Jesus, just hold something before the Holy Spirit. Just give him permission this week and see what he does. See what he does. The second group I want to talk to are those of you that are walked away or considering walking away or maybe you've been disillusioned or disappointed about about what you've seen people do in the name of Jesus or the church or Christians. Um, And if you have seen that stuff, um, I want to apologize to you because... in some ways, as a pastor, that's my fault. Um, I have not always used my role or influence to speak to those things because people get mad and leave. That's no excuse. That's cowardice. And so I'm sorry if that's you and you've been disillusioned or wondered why the church doesn't talk about stuff. Um, it's my fault. It's the church's fault. You know what, though? It's not God's fault. Blaming God for that stuff and walking away from him, that's not his fault. So don't... <laughs> Take it out on God and miss his invitation to you. Because his invitation to you, (laughs) I believe he would say, even right now, he's speaking to someone's heart here. Saying, listen, (laughs) regardless of the evil, the brokenness, the unfairness in this world, and the tragedy that you have experienced in this life, I still want to be with you. I am for you. I'm not causing the evil. The evil that you see, that's not my kingdom at work. I'm here to bring light to this world, and I want to be with you through all of it, light and dark, so you are not alone. So will you, will you open your heart to me again? I want you to remember that when you see stuff that disturbs you, do it, deconstruct it. Any idea that tells you that God loves more, one group of people more than another, deconstruct that, deconstruct any idea that tells you that somehow God is the author or originator of evil, that that evil was God's plan or God's will, deconstruct that, please. And deconstruct any idea that tells you that you've gotta be at a certain level of sinlessness or perfection before you can earn God's forgiveness. That is not true. Deconstruct that stuff all of it, and then look to Jesus. Let all that garbage go. Reconstruct 
and rebuild a faith that looks like Jesus, <laughs> that trusts in Jesus. Because Jesus is our best source. He's our most reliable source. And Jesus is the place to start building your life. Worship team, will you come? Pastor Brian Zond, one of my kind of new favorites, <laughs> he says it this way, let's focus intentionally and intensely on Jesus and play the Jesus card every chance you get because Jesus is the best thing going. I mean, Christianity's got all kinds of problems, but I stick with it because it has Jesus. I wish I had said that. <laughs> I mean, Jesus is the best thing going. Yeah, Christianity, all kinds of problems, all kinds of mess, but I stick with it because it has Jesus. I stick with it because it has Jesus. And wherever you're at in your journey of faith, maybe you're frustrated, angry, disappointed, hurt, confused. My heart <laughs> goes out to you because I've been angry and frustrated and disappointed and hurt and confused myself. And you want to give up and just kind of walk away? Hey, I get it. I have too. And probably more recently than some of you would be comfortable knowing about. But when I think about, what if I just left it behind? <laughs> Reminds me about the story where, where Jesus had a big bunch of followers and he taught some hard things and suddenly uh, most of them left him after this difficult teaching, they desert Jesus and Jesus looks at his remaining small circle of disciples and says, so are you guys gonna leave too? And they said, Jesus, essentially like, we bet the farm on you. We're, we're all in besides. Where, where else would we go? You have the words of life. And when I've thought about just leaving it behind, I think, yeah, where else would I go, Jesus? You're my hope. You're the one who holds my life. Jesus, you're the one who has seen me through the darkest seasons of my life. Jesus, no matter what else I'm trying to figure out in my faith, in my doubt, in my deconstruction and reconstruction, I want to hang on to you. my hope. Friends, as the worship team sings, just let these words sink into your heart and let them become your prayer this morning.